Good to have you with us. My topic this morning is the lost religion. <laughs> and maybe religion isn't such a bad thing after all. So I'm fired up this morning. I hope that I can deliver this to you the way uh, it was delivered to me <laughs> by inspiration. I've really been enjoying uh, looking at a group of scholars that really support the idea that the Bible, that Scripture, uh, was intended from the very beginning to be read uh, mythically, to be read symbolically, that it was actually put together in such a way, and that myth has the real power to speak to us truth. Just because something is a myth does not mean that it's a fairy tale. Um, Joseph Campbell would say that a myth speaks to our spiritual potentials. A myth is something that can be true in any culture, in any situation. It's not dependent upon historical evidence. It's not dependent upon events that take place or uh, literal interpretations. In fact, the power of a myth is that it can allow for... Uh, Individual symbolic interpretations. In other words, the myth can speak to you however the myth speaks to you. And however it speaks to you is the meaning that you need to get that's speaking to your spiritual potentials. And that in reality, the Christian religion, as we know it today, was not something that started with uh, a preacher in Galilee. It's something that started as an imperial religion with Constantine in the third, fourth century, and carried on from there, and infected the world, not just affected the world, but infected the world, and infected the West, and plunged us into 16 centuries of dark ages. So one of the things that I find that's really starting to annoy me, and I understand why people do this, I understand why people believe this and why people think this way, but this idea that ancient people and people uh yeah just ancient people in general people that go back let's say from the time of Christ two millennia or more were idiots that they were stupid that somehow we're just smarter than they were because we now have telescopes and we can see that planets weren't really gods and uh we can uh you know turn on our television and we have all this you know we have cell phones and all this stuff I mean, just because we have some technology that they did not have does not make us smarter or better than they were. And we cannot just look back and assume that they were just idiots and that somehow we've progressed way beyond where they were. In some areas, that's absolutely true. In the areas that I mentioned, we've absolutely progressed beyond where ancient people were. But I challenge anybody that thinks that ancient people were stupid, I challenge you to go back and read Plato. Go back and read Plotinus. Go back and read Valentinius. Go back and read Socrates and Pythagoras. And then let's have a conversation. Uh, then let's have a conversation. Because if anything, I think we've been dumbed down in a lot of ways in the modern world and in the postmodern world. Certainly collectively we've been dumbed down. And one of the primary reasons that we've been dumbed down and one of the primary reasons that we're in the messes we are today is because taking a literal interpretation of the Bible and because of the way we understand religion and what religion is because we want to be literalists, because we want to be beholden to creeds, 
to ideas and beliefs, and then we want to argue about them, and then we want to fight over them. If there's one interpretation to the Bible, because it's 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 God-inspired to be read literally and left in its context, I mean, the, the word <laughs> hermeneutics, I'm kind of going off this morning, but <clears throat> the rules for hermeneutics, if you, hermeneutics is, it's a class that you take in Bible college or seminary, the art and science of biblical interpretation. And it seems to be only the really dumbed down, conservative, fundamentalist version of hermeneutics that insists on literal interpretation and insists that we keep everything in its context, context, context. And if we can just keep it in its context and we can read it literally and we can understand it in its ancient Near Eastern context, then we can arrive at the truth. And the the truth is that just blinds us more and moves us further away from the power of what's actually there because it's meant to be read mythically, not literally or historically. That's how it was intended to be uh, read. I'm I'm firmly convinced of that. And I'll give you some examples of that as we go on. By the way, you're watching this and you are a divorced person. You are thinking about a divorce. You're in the middle of a divorce. I got some good news for you. Because we're going to talk about divorce in the Bible. We're going to talk about what God joined together, let no man put asunder. What, uh, in the NIV it says, what God joined together, let no one separate. And people, because we have not understood the esoteric meaning of that principle and those verses, people have stayed in relationships where that are no longer working for them. They have stayed in uh they've had heaps of condemnation put on them. They've had to wrestle with that stuff. So uh, if nothing else, by the time we're done, we're going to set you free uh, from that kind of stuff. (laughs) All right. So let's just look at the word religion. What what is the word religion? What does it even mean? Religion actually means to bind back. To bind again, or we could say, we could look it up and say that it means to bind back. Let's see if I can find it here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, etymologically, that means uh, the root of the word, where it came from, where the word came from. The word religion. It is that influence which binds a person back, the Latin re, back, and Lego to bind. So to bind back. So <laughs> there's two ways to look at this. The most accepted way, the most accepted version of this definition is to bind someone back to the past or to bind someone back to the traditions. That's the religion we see today. Now, I'm going to pick on Christianity because that's what I come out of and that's what I know the best. I'm going to leave the rest of you all alone. <laughs> if, you, if you're Buddhist, if you're Hindu, if you're Muslim. You know, I, I made a, a really basic, I remember on, on Facebook uh, probably over a year ago, I made a really basic statement about Buddhism that I had taken from reading the Dalai Lama 
And I had a Buddhist guy come after me, man, on Facebook. I've been a Buddhist for 25 years. You're misrepresenting Buddhism. And I was just quoting one of the four major, uh, one of the four noble truths. I mean, it was super basic. But man, he was coming after me and he was cursing at me and he was cussing. And I thought, wow, um, you know, I think about Buddhism. I don't know. A lot of Buddhists never have, never really, it's never held any appeal to me whatsoever. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but I thought it was all about compassion. I thought it was, you know, we're not supposed to be triggered or suffering. And here this guy was coming at me. So I suspect that all religions are the same. I mean, people are the same. So if you got people involved, you're going to have, you know, people like behavior. <laughs> I just found it interesting. I, I'm even pissing off the Buddhists. So, uh, <laughs> So, so back to the word religion means to bind back, to bind back or to bind again, but really to bind back. And so the idea is we're binding you back to the past. We're binding you back to traditions, uh, peer pressure from dead people. (laughs) That's what orthodoxy is. It's peer pressure from, from dead people. And we feel beholden to orthodoxy because we want to argue over Religious ideas. What's really fascinating to me, one thing that's really fascinating to me that I hope to get into in one of these Sunday morning lives, not too far into the future, is that, sorry, excuse me for a second, is that the church was not really beholden to the Bible, to the scriptures. They didn't even have the Bible. Um, at the Council of Nicaea, a lot of people think the Bible was canonized or whatever at Nicaea, and that's just not true. What was canonized, and the word canonized means to be become the measure of rule and authority. At the Council of Nicaea was not scripture, had nothing to do with scripture. It had to do with the formulation of a doctrinal creed, which we know as the Nicene Creed. And what's fascinating is that you can look at every element, again, maybe I'll do this in the future, to look at every aspect of the Nicene Creed, and you can find every single one of those statements to be applicable in ancient Egyptian religion, and specifically Osiris, Isis, and Horus. There's a trinity there. Uh, And the ancient Greeks, out of which the Nicene Creed came, out of which the Bible came, the ancient Greeks were heavily influenced by their own admission by the Egyptian mysteries and wisdom that had come to them, ancient wisdom that had come to them from Egypt. And again, you can go back and look at Egyptian religion dated millennia before the Nicene Creed, and you'll every element, you'll even find statements that sound exactly the same. And then the Bible came later, and what was put in the Bible was only that which seemed to support the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed gave birth to what we know as Christianity today, not Jesus and Acts and the Apostles. So anyway, I'll do that in a future episode. But let's look at religion, the ancient meaning of religion. The ancient meaning of religion, according to the philosophers, had nothing to do with traditions of the past. 
It had nothing to do with being beholden to a system of beliefs that would divide us. It's amazing when you think about it. What Nicaea did and what Christianity did in the West was that it divided people not by their nationality, not by their race, not by their borders, and not by the color of their skin. It divided them by their beliefs. The Nicene Creed and Orthodoxy, by its very nature, creates the other. We are in the imperial religion. We are with the one true God. See, this is why this is important, too, because when you have one true God, then anyone that doesn't pledge allegiance to or worship or serve the one true God is not only the other, they're not only different than you and other than you, they are, you are superior to them. You have the wisdom. You have the divine. You have the God. They don't. And it's simply, the demarcation is simply the beliefs or the creeds that you adhere to. And we're still stuck with this today. This is the, this is the legacy of Christianity. This is the inheritance spiritually that comes down to us today that divides us not by race, not by the color of our skin, not by where we live, but by how we believe and what we believe. This has the power to divide families and it has divided families. It divides, uh, neighbors. You're other because you don't believe like me. And then we're going to sit down and argue about it. We're, we're divided by our ideologies, and that's what religion does. But religion is binding us to the past. It's binding us to tra- traditions. And the sad thing today is, and this is why I'm saying people today are not necessarily smarter and not necessarily better off and not necessarily greater than ancient people because there are a lot of people today that will fight you over their creed. They will condemn you to hell if you dare challenge or question one thing that they think is in the scriptures or that they th- that, that they're beholden to in their own lives. They will uh they will divide with you. They will literally condemn you to hell because you don't believe like them and yet they don't know where in the hell their belief even comes from. They don't even know what they're being bound to. They think they're being bound to, you know, a cosmic God that's out there somewhere and they're serving him with fear and trembling. And they're watching what they're thinking and being meticulous about what they're doing because they're afraid of that judgment day that's coming. And yet they don't. They, there's no substance to it. They don't know. They don't know how we got the Bible. They think we got the Bible at Nicaea. (laughs) Or they think it just floated out of heaven and landed on the printing press. But they're bound to, to traditions and creeds from the past, and they don't even know where they came from. They don't even know who the, the people at the Council of Nicaea were, or who they were fighting with, or what the issues were about. But, but I'll be damned, you better, you better be orthodox. They don't know the history of uh, the, the atrocities. Or they dismiss them, the atrocities of the Crusades, the wars that were fought 
in the name of religion. They don't know how the, 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 the crusades weren't just with the Muslims. They were also with who they considered to be Christian heretics. And by their standards, evangelical Christian, you'd be a heretic today. If you were living and proclaiming some of the things that you're proclaiming as a charismatic Christian, as an evangelical Christian, you were living during the times of the crusades, you were living during the times of the inquisitions, guess what? You'd be the one, you'd be the heretic, you'd be the other, you'd be the one they'd be pursuing and trying to kill. But we're ignorant of that stuff, but yet we're going to be bound to that stuff and tied to that stuff, tied to the past. All right. <laughs> so what is what is the true religion? And by true religion, what I mean is, what was the idea in the minds of these ancient philosophers, what was the idea in the minds that 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 came that, that what what was it that Plato was talking about, Pythagoras was talking about, Socrates was talking about, and when we understand that, then we can look at the scripture, which was not written in Aramaic and was not written in Hebrew. We can debate that all we want, but the best scholars, the the best scholars of ancient languages, not just Bible scholars, will unequivocally unequivocally admit that the oldest manuscripts that we have are written in the Greek, that they emerged being written in the Greek, not Hebrew, not Aramaic. That's completely false. And anybody that tells you that the original scriptures were written in Hebrew or Aramaic does not know what they're talking about. I'm speaking specifically of the New Testament. They don't know what they're talking about. It sounds good. It sounds mystical. It gives them an air of authority to try to push their beliefs off on you because they're going to tell you, oh, well, that was the Greek, but I have this secret wisdom. I have this secret teaching because I'm reading the Peshitta, the the Aramaic, which comes hundreds of years later. And linguists tell us was an interpretation. They can tell us that the Gospel of Mark, which is the oldest extent gospel that we have, was written in Greek and it was not translated. It was not a translation. They have ways of knowing that. Mark's gospel was not translated from some Hebrew or Aramaic gospel. People like to push that, but again, they're just religious, and they don't know what they're talking about, and they're lying to you. They're flat out passing off a lie. Okay, that was free for somebody, and I'm sure I upset somebody or offended somebody because their sacred cow is what the scripture was written in. Hey. When you understand the Gospels came to us in Greek, and you begin to dive into what predominantly was a lot of the Greek thinking, then you can interpret the gospel in a way that makes sense. So what was the original religion? Let me read you uh, a quote here. <laughs> I started to read it and got sidetracked. Etymologically, it is that influence which binds him back. In the Latin, re, re, means back. And ligo or ligio or ligio, I don't know how to say it, I... I have to ask my kids. They're getting a classical education, so they would know this. L-I-G-O, to bind. So etymologically, it is that influence which binds him to that which is most deeply fundamental in him. Did you catch that? The The ancient meaning of the word religion. It binds him to that which is most deeply fundamental in him. 
his deific self, deific, deity, fancy word for God, his God self, a power or disposition which amidst the events of a world that is ever-changing, links him to an order of permanent and essential being that is the abiding heart of the universe. <laughs> Ooh, I love that. Link To link, to bind him back to his most essential self. To bind him back to his most essential self. His deific self. (laughs) And that which connects him to an order that is higher than him, that is somewhat greater than him, in a sense. That which connects him to an order. Let me see how they said it again. I like how they said it better. A power or disposition which amidst the events of a world that is ever-changing links him to an order of permanent and essential being. Permanent and essential being. Links him to his inmost self. Links him to essence and being and eternal abiding. Being, not necessarily a never changing, in fact, an absolutely constantly evolving and changing being, but him, his, his or her deepest self. And that was actually the, that's what all the myths were pointing to. And they knew they were myths. Sure, there were commoners and people that weren't educated that believed that, you know, the stories were not myths and that they were true, much like evangelical fundamentalist Christians today believe that what's in their scriptures is totally without mythology, that it's absolutely true, that it is the source of our faith and the rule of our conduct, that it is true in all matters of faith and science and reality. It's not any different today, so don't be thinking you're so much better because you were born in the 21st century, that you're so much smarter. Actually, I would venture to guess Based on my studies, that uh, that most people were educated in the ancient world and knew that they were talking about myths and knew that the myths were pointing to something else. And what they were pointing to was this inmost being, this connection, this binding together. So what? So so let me break it down in in a in a in a nutshell for you. So these philosophers, again, like Plato. And Plotinus and Valentinius and others, Pythagoras. Uh, I was reading another one, but I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> reading the original works. What they understood, what they understood was that there was something about the human being. They, 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 they would acknowledge, fully acknowledge that humans we're animals, that we are an animal that lives and exists on this planet. They weren't any different than Darwin or Darwinism in that sense then. No denying that we are an animal, that we share characteristics and we share traits with the animals and with the animal kingdom. 
But one thing that's absolutely undeniable is that we are at the top of the food chain when it comes to the animal kingdom on this planet. I mean, that's completely self-evident. And it's not because we're the biggest, and it's not because we're the strongest, and it's not because we're the fastest. It's not because of any innate, this is really important, we are king of the jungle. (laughs) We're at the top of the food chain on this planet. We're the rulers on this planet. Not because of anything innate in our abilities that are the animal part of us. Think about it. Um, we're not the strongest, we're not the fastest, can't fly to get away or to capture prey, can't fly. (laughs) My dog has more physical ability than I do. (laughs) The bird outside my window has more physical ability than I do in the sense that my dog is faster than me, pound for pound, my dog is probably stronger than me, uh, My dog certainly has a worse bite than I do. The birds can fly. Hell, the rabbits can outrun me. What makes us dominant is our minds. Our minds. Our ability to think, but not just our ability to think, our ability to communicate. Our ability to self-reflect. We can communicate on a much higher level. We can deal with things intellectually on levels of complexity that greatly surpasses the animal kingdom. So the ancients were able to recognize this. They were, they were able to recognize its consciousness. It's consciousness that makes us superior. It's consciousness that makes us superior. But they did not have an answer for where consciousness came from. They couldn't explain consciousness. And... Well, at least they couldn't explain it from a natural, from the physical sciences. They could not explain consciousness with a formula or a thesis or a hypothesis that came from observation of the physical world or from physical sciences. Now here's the really interesting thing. In 2000 years, and I'm just going since with the common era. 2,000 years, all the science that we have, all the instruments that we have, if you were to ask a neuroscientist and they were honest with you, they would tell you, we have no idea what consciousness is or where consciousness comes from. Sure, they can identify aspects of the brain where there is electrical firing, literally electricity, energy, creating pathways in the brain, lighting up various parts of the brain, and can tell you how that correlates 
with experience. But it is so basic. In other words, they cannot tell you where love comes from. They cannot tell you where the taste of coffee comes from. They can't really even tell you where imagination comes from, where inspiration comes from. Here's what I'm trying to say. If you want to talk about things that have moved the needle in the last 2,000 years, you can look at travel. You know, we have cars and airplanes now, boats and ships, cruise ships. You can look at communications, cell phones, devices like this, ability to do things like this. To a certain degree, I think to a small degree, but significant degree, you can look at the medical sciences, <clears throat> look at medicine, um, but that's problematic. What else? Engineering, we can build skyscrapers and all that kind of stuff. What else has really moved the needle? <laughs> In neuroscience, again, I just want to stress, I mean, this is interesting to me, that in 2,000 years we still can't identify it. So we have the same problem that they had 2,000 years ago and past, that we cannot identify where this consciousness, this reality of who we are, our being, our essence, where it comes from. The problem is we don't have the same depth of philosophy that they had back then. We don't have the same depth of knowledge, or let me say it this way. We don't have the same religion that they had back then to explain it. So what is what is the true religion? So the idea for the ancients was that what set us apart as human beings was the divine spark, the divine fire, the, the divine fire, the deific self. That it's the, it's the God in us that causes us to ascend above the animal kingdom. I think it's the myth of Prometheus. I think he's the one that brought fire, brought the fire of the gods and gave it to humanity. And if we read that literally, then, then it's like humanity didn't know how to didn't know about fire and they discovered fire because a God came down and showed them how to keep themselves warm and cook their food. We took it literally, but nobody back then took it literally. They believed the fire to be the spark of consciousness, the noose, as Plato would call it, the mind, consciousness, self-reflection, that we were particles of the divine, we were aspects of the divine. So when they would use the term God in this religion, in this sense, this ancient religion, the the root of all religions, you might call it, when they would use the word God, they would always sort of use it like we would use small g God, not big g God. In other words, they weren't, the, the, the understanding of the divine was not that the divine was something other than us, something outside of us, the cosmic sky daddy, as we like 
to talk about the ancient monarch ruling his monarchy upon the throne. It was nothing like that. <laughs> Let me see if I can find this uh, other quote that I wanted to bring out. Nah, I can't find it. So, sorry about that. But you, 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 you get what I'm saying. It was this idea that, um, small g God. And the idea was that we are so linked to God. We are so linked to the divine, uh, that we are bound together, bound up in this divine essence that we might call consciousness. We might, that John the apostle called the Logos. We are so bound together with the divine that the divine is us. In other words, there's a binding together of the divine, the angel and the animal, the God and the animal, the spirit and matter united in the human being. And what imperial religion did in the fourth century was that they took the message of the gospel that really this, this is the message of the gospel that Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. A harmonizing or a marriage of the divine and the human or spirit and matter coming together in the human being. That all of it is sacred. That all of it is divine. And so the story of Jesus is how divinity descends into matter. Divinity descends into that which is material. The fire of Prometheus settles into the animal, the human being. And then as we read the stories has very human experiences. We're coming up on the, the passion time. Easter time. This God who is manifested dies and then is reborn, resurrected, but can't stay in the realm of the living. Can't stay in the realm of living, even though his life continues. In the story, he ascends into the afterlife anyway. So it's supposed to be speaking to us. Speaking to us. And the problem in the fourth century was they, they literalized the story. In other words, it was a way to dramatize the human experience and to remind us that we were also divine. To remind us that we were deific. To remind us that we are the temple that hosts the deity inside of us. We are the temple that hosts the God 
inside of us. And the evidence that we are God is our consciousness that causes us to be greater than every other animal on the planet. And again, consciousness that even to this day neuroscience cannot explain, does not have a good explanation for. No scientific theory has a good explanation for it. And I'm not just saying that. I'm, I'm not saying that on my own authority. I'm saying that on the authority of people like Dr. Donald Hoffman, who teaches uh, at UC Berkeley and went to MIT and was a forerunner in artificial intelligence back in the 80s and who specializes in the psychology of perception. I'm going with neurosurgeon Eben Alexander. I'm going with other neuroscientists who are thought leaders in the field who agree we don't know what consciousness is. So I'm not just saying that we have no good on my own authority. I'm taking it from what they're saying because I realize that stuff's above my pay grade. I just find it interesting and how it plays into the discussion here. So here's a other really fascinating point that I, I need to get to and I want to get to before I, I end this today. <clears throat> that which is above. Uh, l- l- let me do it this way. In the ancient philosophies, in the ancient wisdom, if you will, there was recognition of this universal principle of masculine and feminine energies, masculine and feminine principles, masculine and feminine polarities. And it was through the coming together (coughs) of these polarities that life was created. It's through the uniting of these two that processes took place. Dynamic processes that allowed for life and allowed for growth. And there was also recognition that in order for life to happen, a higher realm had to fully unite with a lower realm in order to produce. A higher realm had to unite with a lower realm in a masculine and feminine sense in order for their something to reproduce. So Jesus says this, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So there was recognition that the vegetable kingdom, the plant kingdom, was on a higher, more sophisticated level than the mineral kingdom. So the ground, the soil, the soil would exist and be classified as all that which exists within the mineral kingdom, dirt, Sand, rocks, <laughs> quartz, diamonds, gold, silver, etc. The mineral kingdom. It's a lower order. It's a lower order. But the plant kingdom cannot ascend into its planthood <laughs> until the higher order 
was received by the lower order and the two mingled to bring forth life. In other words, watch this, the plant has to condescend into the mineral kingdom and receive that which is of the mineral kingdom into its essence. And the mineral kingdom has to receive the essence of the seed into itself so that together the plant can return to its planthood. See it? This is the idea of the ancient religion. That mind exists on a level, consciousness consciousness exists in a dimension and a level above the material, above the animal. And then it must come down, it must condescend, it must join and blend together with our humanity and die in order to return to its higher order. To be, so, so in a very real sense, the idea is that we are becoming gods and will join the realm of the gods. That, that was kind of the idea. If you can get your mind, your modern mind around the idea that there are gods, you know, Zeus and Jupiter and Apollo and whatever. But really the crux of the ancient religion was this idea of the divine in the human. And this is where, when, remember, I haven't forgotten, I was going to talk about divorce. This is the principle that's being talked about in the Bible. So the idea is that we have two natures. We have a divine nature, call it consciousness if you want, and we have a human nature, a material nature, and the two have come together. The two have been joined together. For this reason, in the beginning, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his Wife, because here's the thing, it was, it was always considered that the realm beneath, because we're talking about masculine and feminine principles, the feminine principle, it just, this is just basic sex education, right? The feminine principle is the receiving of something, the incubating of something, the idea of a womb. So the lower realm would always receive from the higher realm. So therefore the soil is mother earth, right? The word matter in and of itself, the etymology of it comes from maternal. It is the mother. It is the feminine principle, or you could say it is the bride. And so when God created man in his own image in the Bible, the esoteric understanding was that the higher order will leave its uh, home, will leave its palace, will leave the higher order and higher realm to be joined to its wife, to, to, to indwell the feminine aspect, which is the body. The feminine aspect, which is material, which is matter, which is this world and this earth in which we live. That's something from a higher realm. Just like that seed was the masculine principle that falls into the ground. Uh, just like that seed, that, that, that offspring from the plant kingdom has to descend and unite itself with the mineral kingdom. And there has to be a blending of both natures for it to ascend into that which it was meant to become, which was its own plant in that same way. <coughs> Spirit is <coughs> dwelling, <coughs> excuse me, 
Spirit is indwelling matter in the same way. Uniting of the two. So therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Spirit and matter together. And what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. And boy, do I want to drive this home. I got 15 minutes to drive this home. What God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Let no man separate. Jesus refers to this in Matthew, I think, uh, 19, and again, I think in Luke chapter 16, where he forbids divorce. But you gotta understand, we're, we, the, 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 see, we read it literally and we try to apply it. This was the problem. The Pharisees were coming to Jesus in Matthew 19, and they're trying to take this spiritual principle that is teaching us who we are as <coughs> divine humans. It's teaching us about our potential. It's teaching us about the possibility of ascending and becoming deity ourselves, becoming deific in that sense becoming the god the little g god in in uh in the ancient understanding of it right that's the principle the principle of the masculine and the feminine what god has joined together spirit and matter let no one put asunder but they try you you try to take that and you try to apply that to relationships and it's no wonder that we're in such a mess. It's no wonder that it doesn't work. Listen, here's the thing. If you want to understand marriage, you need to go. There's a great book out there called Sex at Dawn, uh, Sex at Dawn. And it's not talking about just getting your freak on in the morning. <laughs> it's talking about what, how humanity understood sexuality before the agricultural era, or before the age of property. Before the age of property. Marriage has everything to do with property. Don't believe me? Talk to somebody that's getting a divorce. Divorce is all about, they, they don't, they don't care about your issues, at least especially in Colorado, which is a no-fall state. They don't care what brought you there. They don't care about your issues. They don't care about whether you get along. They don't care about how many affairs you had or didn't have. They only care about the property. How are we going to divide up the property? Marriage is a property contract. It has nothing to do with two people's lives or hearts being joined together, and it has nothing to do really with sex. We've made it about sex, but really it's about property. They don't ask you in a divorce hearing about your sex life. They don't ask you about your communication. They don't ask you about your heart connection. They want to know how are we going to divide up the house? How are we going to divide up the property? How are we going to make sure that one spouse is paying the other spousal maintenance or child support or whatever the case may be? It's all about money. It's all about property. And actually, from the you know perspective that wasn't that long ago, the women was the property of the man. So it's not this sacred thing that God ordained between one man and one woman and you got to stand up and give vows and it's not and you shouldn't feel guilty because you're not when it says what God joined together let not man put asunder you're not that does not apply to you. I mean honest to God there are some marriages and couples I know that have gotten divorces, and instead of, you know, we should have a freaking party. We, we should rent a church for that. We should have a reception for that. We should have a cake for that. We should have some toasts for that. 
Because listen, if you're in an abusive situation or you're bound in a situation where you're not free to grow and free to become who you are becoming, most divorces happen because one spouse outgrew the other or they moved in different directions or they changed as people. Big deal, you know, big deal. We, we, we ought to celebrate that. We ought to have a party for that instead of, you know, heaping condemnation on people and saying, God hates divorce. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. I mean, can we stop peddling in condemnation and shame and guilt? And can we stop peddling in everybody's business and, and trying to regulate? I mean, think about this. The church is out there trying to tell people, uh, who it's okay to love. They're trying to tell people what's okay to do with their own bodies. They are robbing them of their own autonomy. And if there is a sin in my world, if there's a violation in ethics in my world, it's to prevent somebody from having the freedom to grow and authentically express themselves as long as they are not infringing on the rights of others. In other words, maybe our top principle should be live and let live. We're not going to infringe on the rights of others. And anything that infringes on the rights of others is unjust and we should stand up to it and we should speak out again, speak out about it and speak out against it. Speak out against those systems of oppression because, because you're binding the God within that person. You're, you're binding the God within that person when you do that. All right. Let me, so let me come back to this. So what does it mean then? What God is joined together? Let not man put asunder. Let's look at how we do this. First of all, let's look at how religion does this. See, see Christianity and especially charismatic Christianity, uh, as holiness Christianity, all that stuff is guilty of this sin of divorce every single one of them you could have been married to the same woman for 60 years or the same man for 60 years and if you practice this and you think about what i'm just you think like what i'm just about to say you are guilty of what jesus condemns uh, as divorce because you are trying to divorce spirit from matter you're talking about there being two natures you're talking about your sin nature oh my lust of my flesh and this is just my flesh <laughs> trying to 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 perk up and I'm, I'm walking around in this meat suit that I have and, 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 and you spend this time trying to crucify the flesh, trying to condemn the flesh. Trying to escape materialism, whether it's in a rapture that's coming, oh Lord Jesus, you know, come quickly Lord Jesus and get us out of this mess. Or whether you feel guilty for making a decent living, uh, because you're afraid that you're being greedy. Listen, I'm not, you know, telling you to subscribe to greed. I'm not saying go out there and just step on people and crap on people to get what you want. I'm, I'm saying the opposite of that. But I'm talking about this, this imaginary war between spirit and flesh that the church creates. Uh, this idea from Eastern religions that we need to get out of here. We need to get out of this physical universe. Even this idea from Gnosticism, which is rooted in, in Greek philosophy, some schools, Gnostic schools, that the the body is a tomb, and yet when they say that, they don't mean it like like we, the way we read it. But th- this idea from some Gnostics that uh, the the material world is evil. Any religion that exalts ascension, fourth density, fifth dimension, you're missing it completely, or at least you're not aligned with the ancient teachings. I mean, there's a kernel of truth in that, right? Because there is the plant goes into the mineral kingdom and then ascends and wakes up after it dies. It wakes up in the vegetable kingdom. It wakes up to what it really was. But it's got to fully go through the process. 
And we end up teaching people escapism. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. So we're anti-materialists. We deny science. Don't bring me into that science stuff. I'm not going to look at science. I'm not going to listen to science. I'm going to reject science. I'm going to reject materialism. I'm going to reject matter. I'm going to reject my sex drive. I'm going to reject my appetites. I'm going to reject my desires for pleasure and for good things because that's worldly and that's material and that's sin and that's lust. What God is joined together, let no man put asunder. Let no one separate. But now the flip side of this can also be true. Because, so, so, so religion is the husband wanting to leave the wife. Materialism is the wife wanting to leave the husband. Remember, matter comes from the word maternal. Religion is the husband trying to divorce the wife, spirit against matter. Materialism. I'm a materialist. The only thing that's real is what I can touch, what I can see, what I can feel, what I can hear. The only thing that's real is what can be measured in the physical universe. That's all that exists. That's the wife trying to leave the husband. If it's really true, if what these philosophers are saying is really true, it's exciting, man, because then religion is binding me back to the deific self, the deepest inmost part, what Paul called Christ in you, <clears throat> that, that links me to an order and links me to a realm that is higher than what I am as a human being and gives me access. <clears throat> Gosh, excuse me. Goodness, sorry about that. Gives me access to all that's there, right? Gives me access to these resources. Gives me access to knowledge. Gives me access to wisdom. Gives me access to a realm where I can literally manipulate things in the physical realm to create synchronicities and to work the law of attraction and things like this. It's what, it's, uh, you see what I'm saying? And that's what, that's what these ancient philosophers were doing. They were exploring that 50% of what it means to be a human being. They were touching on the divine realm, meaning the human divine realm. They, we might call it consciousness today. We might call it mind, the universal mind. Again, John called it the Logos. I don't want to get hung up on linguistics. I don't want to alienate people because uh, of words. And that's why I'm choosing my words carefully. Materialism. Materialism only is the wife trying to leave the husband of spirit, trying to separate that which God has joined together. Full denial of that realm. It's two extremes. On the religious side, denial of the material side, condemning and damning the material side. On the material side, saying... There is nothing out there. Forget everybody's testimony. Everybody's just stupid. Everybody that said they had visions was 
uh, that was just psychological. They were just, they just had mental illness. Uh, people who claimed to be demon possessed, that was just mental illness back then and they just didn't understand. It's so condescending and arrogant as a, as a modern human being to just assume you know exactly what they were experiencing back then. And then to discount the ex- spiritual experiences of millions and billions of people down through the ages from time immemorial to just flat out dismiss that and excuse that. That's totally different than just being an atheist. Hell, most atheists are coming back into the marriage because they're rejecting the God that's rejected humanity. That you, you got to understand the, 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 this whole idea of original sin, this whole idea that God's going to condemn human beings to hell is the husband in the midst of a divorce. And so a lot of people that are atheists that were part of that realized, huh? And they came back to this principle, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder through their atheism. Right. So I'm I'm speaking to that which is this world is all there is, matter is all there is. We have the fullness of all knowledge right now. And don't tell me your silly stories, your silly made-up stories. The problem really in progressive scholarship with the Bible is that they want to demythologize the Bible. They want to take the myth out of the Bible. They recognize there's myth in the Bible. They want to take it out so they can get to who the historical Jesus was. And they're making the same fundamental error that fundamentalists are making. They want to look at it only historical. They see the only value of it as being historical and being literal. So the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride <laughs> coming down out of heaven. Why is it the feminine now coming down out of heaven? Because... They believed there were successive realms and that there was always the feminine principle first and then the masculine principle. So the feminine principle is matter hosting the deific self, consciousness, the divine spark, the fire of Prometheus, the word become flesh. And then the masculine is the way those divine energies are integrated into humanity in terms of action and voice. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is, If you don't get anything else out of this, what I'm trying to say is open up to your inmost being. Don't be afraid to return again, religio, to be, to bind again to your deific self, to your essence, to your innermost being, to your unique expression of deity. That God is so close to you that God joined his essence to you. Or its essence to you. You don't have to find God in a book. You don't have to find God. God is so close to you. This is why the ancient mystic, uh, I think Madame Jean Goyon, uh, or no, actually she was quoting St. Augustine. St. Augustine could say God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. So he's coming out of that Greek type thinking. You don't, you're not, you don't find God in a book. You don't find God in a prayer meeting. You don't find God in a church. You find God in the core of your essence. And there is a unique expression of that which is divine that wants to burst forth inside of you. And that needs to be honored and that needs to be celebrated. And that needs to be unleashed and released onto the world. Those divine energies need to empower your human endeavors. And they are unique to each one of us. They are unique expressions. And they are not meant to be bound up in a social conformity that we call religion. 
that you're to be led by the God within. The God within you and give that God full expression. You're not to be led by the opinion of some preacher. You're not to be led by some book. You're not to be... And all of it's sacred. Everything about you is sacred. Everything about you is sacred. Your shadow self is sacred. Your... your. Uh, Unmet needs as a human being are sacred. Your desires are sacred. Everything about you is sacred. Don't let the husband send you away. Find out who you are. Explore explore those realms. Explore those dimensions of yourself. Aaron, how do I do that? Well... Don't make it so hard. Everybody's different. Aaron, tell me, tell me how, tell me how, tell me how. See, that's that's the fundamental mistake. Just pay attention. Pay attention to your likes and your dislikes. Pay attention to what's going on inside of you. All right. I've preached at you long enough. <laughs> I preached at you long enough. I hope I didn't. I hope this helped you. I, I hope, again, I was so impacted by these ideas last night, so inspired. (laughs) I hope I was able to deliver it and share it with the same impact with which I received it. So, on that note, I am going to say adios. (laughs) Peace out. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Um, I hope this was a blessing to you. If you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, go to my YouTube channel. I'm putting up more content. Ultimately want to create <clears throat> a network, a place for people to network. I've had a lot of people reach out to me in the last couple of weeks <clears throat> from different parts of the country who are going through similar types of awakening, having similar types of questions, but they don't have anyone around them in their immediate circle that they can connect with or, as we used to say, fellowship with. And so I'm trying to explore how we can create connections for those people, for real seekers and explorers, um, people that aren't dogmatic or just angry at religion or whatever. So anyway, um, hope you're doing great whenever you're watching this. Peace out.